Hello and welcome to Pete's Percussion Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Zambito, and we're here for episode 251 and the return of Stephen F. Austin State University in Texas percussion professor Brad Meyer. Let's get right to it. Brad, along with recent podcast returning guests, Jeff Hewitt and Nathan Daughtry, was on the podcast the first year of the show in 2016 where the show followed much of the same format, but did not have the random ask questions segment that ends the show. Plus, five years is a long time in many careers, so it was time to check back in with Brad on what he's been doing. Now, I did have Brad on the show last year, in fact, as part of the PASIC 2020 preview episodes, though that was a very quick visit. Now it was time for a full one. As I usually do, I'll ask you to check out the previous times I've had Brad on the show, which I will post links to on the episode page and are available on the show's webpage at PeteZambito.com slash Pete's Percussion Podcast, the episodes, as well as SoundCloud. This time around, we get to hear about Brad being recently awarded tenure and promotion and the process that that has at a school. We talk about some of how the pandemic disrupted his teaching, and we talk at length about his work on and chair of the Health and Wellness Committee for the Percussive Arts Society, and all he's done to expand the reach and subjects that the committee presents upon. Full disclosure, I am a member of that particular committee. Plus, like I said, the final segment where he discusses the importance of drum set, our mutual enjoyment of disc golf, the importance of art museums, and many others. So let's get to it. We recorded this interview over Zoom on July 5th, 2021, and it begins right now. So Brad, I had you on about five years ago, and I wanted to kind of catch up with you about uh, where things are for you your career, things that have been going on at the school? You know, a lot's gone on, and, and uh, I got tenure, so that was a big milestone in my career. And now I don't do anything because that's what you do when you get tenure. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I just nap a lot, you mm-hmm. know. Students show up, and I'm usually asleep, and they play, and I don't hear it. and mm-hmm. <laughs> that's, that's tenure, right? Yeah, yeah. sounds good. <laughs> Pretty much. No, uh, I got tenure, so that was a big... Uh, uh, relief for me, you know, that's one of those things that we all as university teachers kind of uh, dread, to be honest. And, and I've talked with a lot of people and it's it's not a dread because we don't think we're good enough. We dread it because we think other people not might think we're not good enough. And so uh, that was a really nice affirmation for me to get past that. Now I'm already looking at the full professor thing, which I'll go up for in about four more years. So uh, that was the first big thing. The next thing is just a, you know, it's Texas. So I'm in Texas and uh, you got to get bigger and better every year. And so we're working on that right now. And we'll have the biggest studio we've ever had this coming season or, you know, season academic year uh, with 29 students in the percussion studio. So really excited about that. And uh, the level is going up as well. We've applied to a couple uh, conferences. So we're hoping to get in and show off these amazing kids that we got in the studio. 
Um, we got Dr. Ben Tomlinson, who is the adjunct, and I've been able to, uh, I've been really happy that as the studio's grown, he's been able to do less of the general music education aspect of, you know, the university and move just more towards uh, the percussion side. So his job is 100% percussion related now at uh, steel band, marching band, percussion lessons, and percussion methods. So it's nice to have kind of two full-time instructors. It'd be great if we could get that uh, job tenure track, but you know how academia is. It's uh, it's hard enough to get one tenure track line anymore. So it's exciting because uh, studio is really kind of kicking on all cylinders, and, and that's uh, this will be my 10th year, and I feel like a lot of that groundwork that was laid uh, is really starting to come to fruition, and lots of uh, fantastic students graduating, fantastic students coming in, and uh, yeah, it's, it's just kind of nice to feel established at a place for a while. I, I know that uh, with the tenure kind of came the idea of uh, what do you want to do? What did I want to do with my life? And do I want to stick around? And I've really come to love Nacogdoches, which is where SFA is, and love the program and, and feel that I've got some great students and great faculty and great administration. So uh, I'm really, uh, you know, me and my wife are kind of looking at just staying here and trying to make our situation as, as fantastic as can be, both professionally and also personally, because I think the, the step after you get tenure is you realize, I've been practicing for 30 years of my life. I don't have anything outside of that other than some marimba chops and some snare chops. So I've been getting into things like uh, cycling and, and uh, you know, uh, I love a, a nice bottle of wine. So, you know, you got to enjoy some uh, wife time and, and some couple time and some personal time. It's just kind of doing that stuff, uh, just trying to grow more. We're uh, Something that's been really fun recently is the uh, PAS Leadership reading club and we're reading the uh, uh, Cynic Start With Why book, uh, Simon Sinek. And so that's a fun book that we're digging into. And I've also on my next little flight, I've got Paul Byers working towards excellent books, excellence book that I'm going to check out. Uh, but yeah, you know, uh, just, I don't know, working hard. That's, that's what's going, been going on and what I think uh, will probably continue to go on. How are you doing, Pete? Nobody wants to know. So, uh, <laughs> um, I, I'm I'm doing all right. Thank you for asking. <laughs> yeah, well, I, you know, I, I know it's an audio podcast, but it's really nice that you dressed up in a crown and flowing robes for me, and mm-hmm. you know, it's it's lovely. It's really that's and it, you know what? What's good is that's a very smart outfit for July and it in, is in the Midwest. Yeah, absolutely. It really yeah. shows off your uh, regality. <laughs> yes, yes. It's also possible I'm wearing a shirt that says Italia. Uh, <laughs> That's ridiculous. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, one of the things that I, I'm, I'm curious about with the tenure is that, and this is obviously different for for many different schools and, and many different programs, but is there an establishment of what is expected for you being associate professor to go up for full, like, are they looking for, are, are there signposts that they're looking for in your position? Is it more, does it feel like it's more of a, just continue what you're doing? What, what have you gained from, from that? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and actually we're really fortunate. We had a really strong committee of people. Uh, I think it was about six or seven committee members revamp our tenure and promotion uh, handbook, which was excruciatingly sorely needed. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And it's really, I mean, it's as clear as, as it can be. Yeah, oh, I'm sorry. But before, I, before you say, talk more about that, was that yeah. a, um, within the, the, within the school music or within like the college, like what yeah, was, was, within the, the, school what was music. the directive of the promotion te- of that handbook? Yeah. Yeah. It was the school of music's, uh, handbook for tenure and promotion, which was, uh, I, I think it was also done, um, like the, I believe the Dean may have also signed off on it. So it kind of goes up through the, the college level, I believe, but you know, the, the, uh, the biggest challenge in any tenure and or promotion is the school itself, because that's going to people that, uh, know your work more intimately. And then usually you don't get any, uh, hiccups above that, you know, whether it be the Dean or the president of the university, unless you've just done something really bad if the school says hey this person's good to go 99.9% says chance says that you'll get whatever the recommendation is um and so yeah that was uh something that our school of music did and they revamped that that faculty uh, handbook policy for tenure and promotion so it's it's a lot more clear now and and I'm really thankful cuz the the earlier one was not quite as clear and there were differing um you know, things that people would be telling me. And, and so it's it's nice to have a go-to source for that. And, and I recommend anyone out there to, you know, revamp that handbook if, if it's been a while because that's such an important thing and can cause so much stress in people's lives. So uh, I'm really thankful we had quite a few high-level high, high level minds do that and it really paid off. And they took it seriously. Sometimes people are on committees and they just don't take it seriously and they phone it in. So that was really great. But uh, so the tenure and promotion that I went through from assistant to associates, uh, typically that in our handbook or our guidelines says, you know, the majority of that is going to be teaching, uh, you know, and that, and again, it's, it's vague, like 60% teaching, but what is that based off of? Is it based off of retention? Is it based off recruitment? Is it based off of, uh, what people see in the upper level juries? Is it based off of what people see in the concerts? Uh, is it, you know, there's just so many factors and, and everyone can personally weigh them heavily or light, uh, you know, student evaluations is a big cause for concern in all of academia and how much those factor into uh, the idea of tenure and promotion. So, you know, yes, people see those, but it's kind of up to the individuals and you're hoping that with a large enough faculty, just like with any average, that things will kind of come out evenly and that things will get, um, you know, the, the fairest outcome that can be. So it was 60% teaching and then 20% service and then 20% research. And going up for the, the full professor or just what is called professor, but a lot of people call it full professor, uh, which I'm sure you know, Pete, but I'm, I'm saying for in case other people don't know. Uh, for the full professor, you are looking, they're looking more at research and service. So I think it's weighted evenly at 33% for all three of those areas. So 33 teaching, 33 research, 33 service. Uh, it kind of comes with a caveat that if you've went up for associate, that hopefully means that you're already a great teacher. Now you just need to work on the other stuff. Uh, but obviously the teaching can't just fall by the side, which is why I made the joke earlier that I was sleeping through lessons because I don't do that. Um, just in case anyone did not get my dry sense of sarcasm. <laughs> May not come across uh, as, as easily with it being an audio. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so no, I don't sleep through lessons. In fact, I over caffeinate. So there you go. Um, <laughs> But yeah, it's it's exciting. And I think the good thing for me is that I've always been really highly into the research and service aspect. I've been on the faculty senate, uh, tenure promotion committees, merit committees, 
um, faculty development committees. Uh, I'm going on the university um, finance committee here as I rotated off a, a, a committee or two. You have to pick up one. And so I'm looking forward to being on that one and seeing more in depth about what the university uh, does and how they do it. Because that's always the neat, interesting part about being in university life is seeing what happens, why and where. And then, you know, research for me has always just been something that I've done naturally, whether that's writing articles. I'll have one coming out in August uh, with a, a few of the local community and transfer college professors in Texas about, uh, you know, helping transfer students transfer from two-year programs to four-year programs. And I think that's something I'm really passionate about because I think those students can struggle a lot when it comes to changing environments, especially, you know, they go from two or three years at a, at a community or transfer school, whatever you'd like to call it, and then they hit that four-year program. And, and so they've gone from high school to transfer school to four-year school and it's, it's, a, it's a lot of transitioning back and forth. And so I thought that that was a really important article that needed to be written. And uh, yeah, uh, you know, other things are just, uh, I'm going to probably do a, a recital in, in January. I'll probably tour, try and tour that around to some schools and universities. Uh, I actually have another article that I'm currently writing. To, so, you know, just research has always been something that I'd love to do for myself. It's not something that I feel um, I needed to jump on and improve because I was lacking in that area. Hopefully, I mean, you know, you, you can only do what you can do. So yeah. Um, but that's kind of the difference between the assistant to associate versus associate to full professor that, uh, at least my university has. Part of what I was wondering was whether the, uh, sometimes the, it's like a, a national recognition for associate and then international for full, oh, like sometimes yeah. that that's a that's can be a factor in you know how so I didn't know if they were for they were having a requirement for you to do like international stuff. Yeah, um, no, that's work. a that, that's a great question because uh, you know my wife's has my wife has a, a brother uh, a half brother who teaches up at the University of Chicago and he teaches uh, something that they have really clear guidelines. You have to have you know three national articles. You have to have one international article every academic year. And I think with music, because it's so diverse, uh, they can't really pin that down. Uh, obviously, I think as you go for associate to full, they want more national and internationally recognized things. Um, but, you know, at the same time, the stuff that really helps at least my program is more of the regional stuff, more of going out to the high schools and, and doing clinics there and doing virtual clinics with the, the, you know, big thing is just the recruiting. And so I don't think that there's been any mandate that you have to have, you know, one international performance a year or, or something like that. But, you know, it, it, it's definitely helpful to do that. Obviously with this past year, international performing is, you know, just not possible. So uh, there has to be some leniency with that with COVID, but, uh, yeah, I, I think that that's just inherently a part of that idea of teaching becomes less of the part of promotion and research and service become more. And I think that also includes higher level research, uh, but also higher level teaching things, you know, not just students doing a concert in the concert hall at the university, but hey, are they playing at the local MEA or are they going to PASIC or do you have students doing drum corps? Do you have students doing things internationally, competitions, festivals, whatever it is. And so, uh, and that's been something that I've been really happy with my students. I've got seven students in drum corps right now. Uh, I have my master's student present and perform at the National Conference on Percussion Pedagogy. Um, and so I'm, I'm 
still trying to decide if I want to take a group to the the uh, PAS Concert Chamber Percussion Ensemble Competition. We did that two years ago. It was a blast. I, I love doing it. But I think that there hopefully will be uh, something else on the horizon for us this semester and then do it next fall. So that's kind of – I'm trying to play it smart without – trying to have a whole bunch of stuff in the middle of the semester or or just a whole bunch of stuff to do instead of one thing to really focus on and let the students really aim towards that. Uh, so yeah, I think that it kind of goes to that more, you know, getting out of the area and regional stuff and more of the, the national and international stuff in all, in all the areas that you can research and teaching. So let's transition to the um, kind of the pandemic uh, situation, obviously. There's a lot of similarities and differences as what's happened at various programs. Um, talk a little bit about the kind of the stru- like the structures that were involved for you all to continue to do whatever you needed to do. What things did you have to adjust on your end for the students, et cetera? I'm sure there's a lot of people that ha- were in my situation, a lot of people in very different situations. Uh, I know people that literally just got back to work. And it's, you know, yeah. early July <laughs> they like physically just got back to work. Obviously you can do virtual stuff. Uh, I was back to work on day one, uh, or, or I guess I should say my university was, uh, I, I think in the last fall I had about 24 students. You mean day one of fall 2020? Of, uh, yeah, exactly. Okay. Day one of fall 2020. Yep. And so day one, I was back, you know, we were wearing masks. We had uh, hand sanitizer. We had sanitizing products for the instruments. We had uh, HEPA air filters in all the applied studio teachers' room. A lot of the brass people put up like barriers that were made of like shower curtains and PVC. Uh, but for me, it was just uh, mask up and, and social distance. Uh, we did percussion ensemble, but I, I did groups no larger than seven because uh, our room was rated for 13 people for COVID. It's rated for like, I think, 32 without COVID. And so I didn't even want to approach that. Uh, so we just did no, nothing larger than seven people. With uh, lessons, you know, we always wore masks, had the HEPA filter going, tried to do no, uh, you know, touching or mallet swapping or anything like that. And uh, uh, yeah, I, I mean, for, for me, I as weird as it is to say, it was almost like normal. Um, just, you know, with that constant mental mindset of don't touch things of other people's and, uh, you know, keep the social distancing. A little less of that, like, you know how we all like to go up to the instrument and play something and model for the student and then they play it. You know, there was, there was a little less of that, but uh, as, as time go on, time went on, I kind of felt uh, that we had a good grasp of how to handle it. And so we did the things that we thought were, were appropriate and didn't do the other things. And so, yeah, between lessons and percussion ensemble, uh, we didn't have any transmissional cases of COVID in the percussion studio. And we were face-to-face the whole year. I did have uh, two or three, I think three students by the end of the academic year that had gotten COVID, but those were students that had either gone home and got it from family members or had outside jobs, you know, like a Walmart job or a Lowe's job, and they'd gotten it there. But the craziest thing is those students actually came to campus not knowing that they had COVID. And and then after they found out, they self-quarantined. And, and we had quite a few cases of self-quarantining, which I was fine with. There was a lot of le- le- uh, leniency and leeway with that. It was like, if you feel like you might have it, we'd rather just be safe and, and we'll do virtual lessons for two weeks. But we had a couple students that didn't know until a couple days after. And uh, with the masks, there was no transmission from studio member to studio member. So we were really fortunate. Um, I will say that a couple students chose to do online 
uh, in the fall. I had two students do online learning, and that was rough. I don't know how people did that for the entire year. I did it for one semester with two students, and it was not not fun, and it wasn't fun for them, and, and I know it wasn't. And I tried what I could, you know, to make it work, but I had one student in, in his basement with like, I think he had like a flip phone that we were doing the lessons over, and you know, it was, it was rough. He had a xylophone and a drum set, a snare drum, and that, that was, you know, connectivity issues and instrument issues. And, you know, he was in percussion ensemble. And, and so I had him do a duet with the other remote student. And so we had to do play long click tracks off. It. And it was really cool. It was a neat experience to do that. But it also, you know, I, I just hats off to everyone who had to do virtual learning either one semester or two, because, you know, the students had a hard time. And, and I know the professors did. And, and uh, in the spring, I was fortunate that 100% of my students were at least on campus, so I didn't have to do that anymore. Um, but it, it took a lot of creative thinking. My wife's an AP uh, research teacher in high school. She teaches AP Euro, AP uh, History, and, and an AP Research class, and she had a lot of students online, and it was basically two jobs for her. You know, She, she did not have a, a fun year, and, and uh, she worked her, her rear end off, and so I don't know. I know how, but I don't know how. People did it all year long, so hats off to everyone that did that. But for me, it just was it was fortunately very normal. About the only thing that we did virtually was studio class, where we'd have uh, you know usually four to five performers play, and everybody else would just watch over Zoom. And that was really kind of the biggest virtual aspect. But yeah, it was just about being safe as possible. And you know, we were in Texas, so we were kind of at the forefront of pushing the envelope of how normal can we be in terms of face to face. And, uh, right. you know, we, I think everyone was a little worried with that. We, we felt like we were kind of the, the tip of the spear and, uh, it, it could have gone any way. And, but I think that we all tried to embrace it and say, okay, let's do, let's do this and let's do it as safe as we can. And fortunately for us, uh, I hate to say the gamble, but it was a gamble for anyone that went face to face, the gamble paid off. And I felt like the students had a, had a really, educational and uh, fruitful year. So that was, it was nice that for that, to be honest. It felt kind of as normal as you could make it uh, yeah. much of, of what was going on. And, and well, I kind of liked the masks because I, I didn't get a cold. I didn't get a flu, you know, uh, it, it felt good. I always call it the junk. You get the junk around the second or third week of school when there's typically in a year where everyone comes back from the summer and someone's got something that they all start making out because they just saw each other again in the fall and every student gets the flu or the cold and then you get it. And, uh, yeah. it's just, uh, I, I didn't miss not being sick. I, I, that's a double negative, right? Yeah. I didn't miss not being sick. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, the other thing that, that I found useful is that, um, you know, if you, you, uh, you, you could, totally kind of play with the re with with other people's reactions like because it would just look like you know if they asked you something you you could your your expression just didn't change at all yeah. so you, they couldn't get a grasp on what you were doing so maybe people were being a little bit more careful because um, <laughs> they weren't sure they didn't know the look at like the sides of your eyes to kind of see yeah. if you're kind of smiling that kind of thing well, no that was kind of a neat thing I realized really early on I had to tell students a lot more about what I was thinking or what I was feeling. And I'd, I'd have to say, like, you know, hey, that that performance made me really excited or really happy, you know, because they couldn't see me smile or, right. you know, and, and so I really found that you had to just talk through what you were feeling that you normally could just express with a, a smile or a head nod or something. And so, yeah, that was really interesting. Yeah. 
were there restrictions? I know this isn't necessarily your purview, but were there restrictions on marching band, on large ensembles, uh, and in-person concerts at the school? Yeah, uh, for the fall, there were no, I don't want to say there were no concerts. There were no uh, live attended concerts. You could do virtual concerts. Uh, and then in the spring, they said you could have a COVID uh, accepted, accept, a COVID acceptable amount of audience members, which was usually going to be uh, family and friends, especially if it's a large ensemble. And so, uh, yeah, for this, the fall, uh, what my program did is we just uh, recorded everything and we did a live stream. So we got a good live stream, but we also got some great recordings. And then we got the option for a live audience in the spring. And I actually just punted on that. I, I really enjoyed doing the, the virtual aspect of it. I felt like we reached a lot more people in terms of the students' families, the students' friends, uh, other people around the country and hopefully around the world. Uh, you know, you'd get like something between 100 and 300 viewers in one of those concerts. And it was really nice to see that versus, you know, sometimes a live stream is not great when, uh, you know, it's done through the university because it's in the back of the hall. Uh, you know, the camera is, so it's not the best like close up. Whereas I could just be on stage and we set everything up in a circle around the camera. And so I would just turn the camera. And so the audience was kind of able to be right there on stage with the students. I thought, I thought it was just really, uh, involved. I, I felt like it got the audience on, on kind of the performers level. They could see them really nicely and some good audio as well for, the concert bands, we actually had concert band rehearsals outside under tents the entire year, and which was a little bit of a nightmare. I will say that some of the uh, equipment, just by the moving inside and outside, got pretty beat up. Chime wheels got beat up. Uh, timpani wheels got beat up. You know, a couple things got dropped, and, and, and that wasn't great. But the students were as careful as they could be. And so, you know, that's just going to be what it is in terms of having to deal with a COVID year. We'd much rather deal with that stuff than not have those ensembles at all. And uh, so, yeah, they would rehearse outside in the spring or in the fall. They didn't have any concert band concerts, but in the spring they had two concerts and they did those in our largest ballroom, which is across campus. And there was no audience or, or a very exclusive audience, I should say, of like 10 to 12 people. Um, but uh, yeah, it was we, we did try to, to have all the ensembles, the jazz bands rehearsed, the orchestras rehearsed, all the small chamber groups rehearsed. And so that was. Uh, a really nice thing. It was kind of hard for the bands from what I gather, especially in the fall, not having a kind of like a goal, like, you know, that concert for the students are so important. It gives them a reason to kind of like get excited. And, you know, nobody goes to, you know, do drum corps to do spring training. They do it for the performances. <laughs> so same thing with that, that kind of fall semester. Yeah. They got that, that large ensemble uh, experience, but it was definitely kind of lacking that, that goal that that you know end of semester kind of idea of like let's show off what we've done and so it was nice that in the spring that they had a couple things to do as well yeah what now what about marching band so the marching band just did uh i, I think a lot of schools had the what was called like the field bubble or something like you couldn't break the bubble of the field during the game <clears throat> and so the marching band would do their pregame stuff in terms of uh, before the game, uh, the marching down the street and all that stuff. And then they would just, I believe they, it's been a while, but I believe they just went right in the stands for the whole game, including the pre-show stuff, you know, the fight song and all that stuff. And then at the end of the game, 
they would stick around and then do an actual on-field performance. So they would have to get the whole football team, both football teams and everyone off the field, and then the marching band would play. And that was really cool because even though it wasn't the halftime performance, there was a lot of people that stuck around. And I, I, I would, I'm not the biggest football fan, so I would just come for the end-of-game performance. Sure. And, uh, and it was at least something, whereas I know a lot of groups either had no marching band or they had to do it in the stands the whole time. Uh, but yeah, they got to march some drill. They got to play some tunes on the field. And, and it was uh, as, I think that was as good of an experience as they could have had. So uh, hats off to our marching band director for getting them involved as much as possible. Nice. Yeah. We ended we were, we had the same thing. We weren't allowed on the field uh, here at Mizzou, but we did a lot of recorded a lot of stuff and, and then played that during halftime. So we would, oh. we would have like, so we did still like learn sets and, and things like that. Um, so not the same, but at least like if you were at the game, you would ha- you could hear the band and you could see them, you know, on the big screen. Yeah. Kind of thing, so were they, were the, was the band in the stands and they would just play it the halftime thing over the, Oh, that's great. Yeah. So we yeah. would do, we would, we do, cause we do halftime and then we do a, a little bit of a post game any like normally. And so what we yeah. would do is, we had limits on the amount of people that we could have there. So a third of the band would come for the first half and they would do halftime and then that group would leave. And then the second third would come in and do the rest of the game and then do the post game. So each group would get to do the halftime, the halftime show. Nice. Um, Actually. Yeah. That reminds me, they did have to break the marching band into two small marching bands yeah. Uh, so we had we normally have four rehearsals a week. So they just had an A band and a B band, and and it wasn't like one was all the top players, and one was the lower players. They really tried to just mix it up and then have the section leader be a part of both bands. Right. And so yeah, they they would have the A band play the halftime at the end of the game one week, and then the other the other week. So uh, that was I think because the field couldn't handle that the six foot spacing with all like three hundred students. So that's why they did that. Yeah. The other thing I wanted to talk to you about was, and we talked about this a little bit the first time, but um, your work on the health and wellness uh, yeah. committee, which uh, you're my boss on that committee. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm so such What's a that? boss on that. I'm such a boss on that committee. <laughs> um, but I want talk a little bit about why this is why for you this is such an important committee, um, and, and what kinds of things you felt like you could contribute. Uh, you know, as being the the chair of it. Yeah. You know, I, I love the health and wellness committee. I was on it for two or three years as a member. And then I've been on the, uh, as the chair for the past five years. So I have one more year and then I'll rotate off as the chair. And uh, there were a couple things initially that I wanted to try to do. You know, Frank Schaefer was the chair of the committee before me, fantastic person, fantastic player. And uh, th- I just thought that there were some things that I could try to also, you know, add on to what he did. And what I really loved about what Frank did is he really made it about the individuals, you know, every committee, every committee meeting, he would, uh, you know, introduce everyone and, and just kind of make it a place where people were known to each other. And so, uh, something I, I still got a couple of ideas I'd like to, even with my one year left, uh, I've been a little lax on them as I think we've all tried to give ourselves a little grace in the COVID period. Cause uh, I wanted to do some virtual meetings and then COVID hit. And I was like, I think everyone's tired of meeting virtually. So I kind of scrapped that. Uh, but I would like to start that up this year and do about two or three during, throughout the year just to kind of get a heads up. Uh, but what I love about the Health and Wellness Committee is that it's such a, a 
a diverse committee, even though we do have the diversity committee, uh, but it's a diverse committee in how people think of health and wellness. You know, it's such a generic idea or, or general idea. And so it could be physical health and wellness, uh, you know, emotional health and wellness, spiritual health and wellness. And I think there's just a lot of ways to attack it uh, or attack that kind of general idea. And so uh, one of the things that I've tried to do is, first of all, grow the committee because I think early on it was 12 or 13. And I think it's up to about 18 to 20 right now. And I just wanted that because uh, I felt like there could be more involvement from people. I know that sometimes when you get too big, people are like, I don't know how to be involved but there weren't a whole lot of duties like a lot of the other committees have that are, um, you know, like I, I try, I'm trying to think off the top of my head, but I know that some committees have to, like the marching committee put on the marching festival and they have to have volunteers for that. And so if you have too many people, then people don't get the opportunity to volunteer. Whereas with health and wellness, about the only main thing there is is the hearing test that we have at PASIC, and that's actually run by uh, the university that runs that. So that's not actually a health and wellness thing itself. So what I wanted to encourage people to do is to be more of ambassadors for health and wellness by writing more articles and being more involved. And uh, so the first thing was to grow the committee to try to help give it a little bit of presence because I felt that it was a little small early on. And then the second thing, which I'm still working on, is trying to find ways of encouraging people to be active through PAS and through non-PAS things. And so obviously with PAS, uh, applying for PASIC, whether that's uh, a panel discussion, a masterclass, a clinic, uh, you know, any of those different categories. Uh, um, there are also research topics that can be done. Uh, and doing those things at PAS, also writing articles for Rhythm Scene and for Percussive Notes. But then the big thing that for me that I kind of started to think about with the health and wellness ideas, you know, health and wellness is it's hard to pin down for percussion specifically. I mean, you can talk about uh, specific things like, you know, stretching and warming up and taking care of physical aspects of playing. But I think a lot of the health and wellness aspects that are really kind of not more important, but are coming to light are the mental health and wellness. And those are things that are across all areas, whether that's, uh, you know, music, percussion or music or choral, you know, it's just kind of general ideas. And, and I think that that's a hard part because we are a percussion oriented committee, but it's also things that are generic and can help a lot of people. So I've encouraged, at least I hope I feel like I've encouraged people to do, uh, you know, articles and presentations for obviously percussion groups, but for just general musicians as well. For me, I've, I've worked on a couple different clinic ideas. One was, um, I forget the exact title, but was thriving as a college music major. You know, all those things where you feel like a student's dad and you're like, you need to get A's in classes. And I could kind of go into those a little bit more and how that can help students mentally better approach a semester and hopefully take some of the stress out of their semester so that they can feel more confident, feel more, I guess, hate to say relaxed because I think that's an over uh, exaggeration of that word, but just kind of feel like they're a part of that semester instead of being kind of crushed by it. Uh, and I had another one for finances. So, you know, musician finances. What's the biggest stressor in almost everyone's life, whether it's musician or not? It's finances. And so that to me was a, a big part of mental health and wellness. How can I get somebody to feel good about their finances? Even if it's a college student that doesn't have a lot of finances to deal with, you know, how can they feel better about those finances without, uh, you know, I, I, I know for a long time, what's a, what's a retirement? What's Roth IRA? And those questions even though I wasn't doing anything about them, they would hang over my head. I felt like I was getting behind because I wasn't doing anything. So if I can tell someone how they can 
start saving for an Roth IRA or or you know a Super Saver 457B through their school. Uh, talk about credit cards and how those work. Because you know, to be honest, we take some things for granted. I think, especially as older adults, we're right. like, of course, people know what a credit card is and a debit card is. And yet, young people are like, I literally had a student. She was scared of credit cards, yeah. and and so I had to talk to her about what a credit card was. She's like, Oh no, I, I don't have a credit card. My parents told me never to get a credit card. And it's like, Well, that's that's a philosophy, but let's talk about what it actually is, so you can make a better informed decision. And I think that stuff like that, you know, having credit, working on your credit score, uh, having some uh, more financial resources at your, you know, at the tap, if you will, are ways that can help people feel kind of more mentally secure and stable. So, uh, you know, for me, I think one of the things I've really hopefully tried to encourage in the, the committee is to start thinking about health and wellness, not just as percussion, but as kind of how can we spread that to all musicians and, and, and by proxy, you know, we are percussionists. So we're going to have a percussion take on it. You know, I talk a little bit about instrument purchasing, which is a lot different for percussionists than it is for a lot of other instrumentalists and how, uh, you know, Hey, if you buy a $14,000 marimba, well, that's one of your five core areas, areas of percussion. So you might not want to buy a marimba as a, uh, an undergrad, or maybe you want to buy a practice marimba or buy a, a practice banner, you know, like, trying to be a little bit smart, but also realizing that a lot of percussionists, and, and I like the Stephen Schick books, uh, the percussionist art, same bed, different dreams. He talks about the story about his mom got him into percussion because it said sticks only, you know, and the, I guess his family was not well off financially. And so that was a way to kind of like, okay, you can do music, but you're going to do the thing that's extremely inexpensive. Well, I think that that's how a lot of percussionists get into it. Parents or the students see, Hey, I don't, have, I don't I can't afford a trumpet. I can't afford a clarinet. And so they I'll do percussion. I can buy a stick pack. And I think that that's a great thing for us as percussionists because it probably gets us more percussionists because of it, you know, because it's yeah. that there's that lower entry level uh, amount. But as uh, students grow and they progress, I think that sometimes they keep that mentality, whereas, you know, you got tuba players buying an $8,000 tuba to come into college and you got a trumpet player that has a B flat and a C and a, and a, and a pocket trumpet or a cornet trumpet, a soprano, whatever you want to call it. And they're spending twelve, fifteen thousand dollars $15,000 and here the percussionists are and they say, well, now I got to buy a couple more sticks and mallets, you know, because I'm going to college. And there, I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but I think that you also have to invest in yourself. And I use that term, that phrase, invest in yourself in a lot of ways, whether that's academically, personally, but also financially. And so sometimes I have to have a, a, a in-depth discussion with percussionists saying, hey, look, you got into percussion being able to spend $100 on a pad of sticks, mallets, and timpani mallets. But now you're wanting to be a music education or music performance major. This is now becoming your career. This isn't just a extracurricular activity in high school. So you need to start investing so that you're making good sounds, so that your ears can develop, so that you can start figuring out how to get great sounds and what not great sounds are. And you're going to have to do that through a little bit of investing in yourself financially through whether it's better sticks and mouths. You know, I encourage undergrads, I don't require, but I encourage, hey, get a snare drum. Get yourself a nice, you know, five inch by 14 inch concert snare drum that you can take for the rest of your life. And if you're a band director, you can let your students use it. You can teach private lessons on it, or you can take graduate auditions if that's your thing. But, you know, you should have 
a nice plethora of mallets. I always call mallets paints. You know, you never see a paint major, a painting major, when you're art major, <laughs> there's no painting major, but you don't see painting majors, uh, art majors go into college and say, well, I've got a bottle of red paint and a bottle of blue paint. So I guess I'm good. You know, and to me, that's like students coming in with a pair of snare sticks and their pair of marimba mallets. You know, it's like, you can't do that. You got to invest in yourself. And I think that having that financial talk helps them go, okay, what do I really need to do? How can I afford things? How can I budget for things? Making a budget is a huge part of that. So uh, yeah, I think that health and wellness being a, uh, a part of that committee for so long has really started to mean a lot more to me uh, in terms of what it covers rather than trying to like laser focus in on something. I really enjoy that expansive view for many of the reasons you said. And I think it's hard sometimes to think beyond like, am I wrists still good? Right. Right. Like, or, you know, posture, um, you know, that kind of like getting beyond just the, the playing aspect of, of maintaining your, your physical, you know, abilities versus all the other stuff that goes into being a, a, a professional and being a human being that we don't spend enough time thinking about because we are, you know, we got to work our double verticals for, you know, 35 minutes. <laughs> well, yeah. And I, a lot of, one of the big questions that people have about joining the health and wellness committee is this hesitation or, or hesitancy. They're like, you know, I'd love to write an article on, on like marimba warmups, but I'm, I'm afraid it's already been done. And, and I always have the same response. I say, write it. You know, because first of all, there probably has been something written about it. Actually, I know there is about, you know, marimba warmups. Yeah. But what's your take on it? And even if uh, what your takes are or an amalgamation of other people's takes and, and a little bit of your own experience, you know, a lot of people don't go back and dig through old percussive notes magazines. They read the current one and they keep doing that. And so I think that you shouldn't be afraid to hit a topic that's already hit as long as you're doing it with the kind of like intent of like, I'm going to do this with my own zest, my own kind of voice on it. And yep. a lot of things are going to be similar because you can only skin a cat so many ways. But at the same time, sometimes people don't go and look at those older articles. And sometimes it's just nice to have a fresher looking article, add some pictures, add some videos. You know, it's a great way about the PAS uh, or the percussive notes and rhythm scenes, especially in rhythm scene, they can add video attachments and links and stuff that make it a lot more interactive. And so uh, I think that, that's the really cool thing about health and wellness is that we can kind of keep reapproaching those things. And I mentioned that because I wrote an article for the Texas Bandmasters Review, which is a band director oriented article. And I literally wrote it on how to set up instruments at the correct heights. Because I just kept seeing these students coming in for auditions in the first weeks of school, and I'd have to go over the same thing. And I said, you know, I'd, I'd like to help. I don't want uh, apparently there's a need for this. And so, you know, something as kind of basic as setting up an instrument to the right height, but if it's not being covered, it's not being covered. If students need the info, they need it. And, you know, it got into like, get some wood blocks and put it under the marimba. We've all seen that basketball player that also plays marimba and they're playing on a low A musser. And, you know, their, their arms are just hanging down looking like, you know, jungle ropes basically and trying to play a marimba. Or, and it's like, no, put some stuff under that. And, you know, it's, it's just really refreshing when those things that, you know, and, and you've seen for years, but all of a sudden a band director, they're like, Oh, I didn't know that. Or I wasn't taught that. Or I forgot about that. It's like, Hey, we're all in it together and we only know what we know. So you just got to sometimes re-explore old concepts, even if they're old to you, they might be new to somebody else. Yeah. 
Yeah, definitely. And I know, and you mentioned Paul Beyer, and I remember a meeting, I can't remember, this might have been an NCPP like a decade ago. And he said, he's like, yeah, I've, I've heard that about, you know, what should I write about? Or he's like, well, what, may, what makes you angry? <laughs> like, what, <laughs> That's what, what's bothering you about what's happening in percussion? That, write about that. Yeah. Like, and he kind of was kind of kind of admitting what you're saying about not only people not going back into the, the older issues, but also saying the point of saying someone else guaranteed someone else has thought the exact has seen the thing you're going to about to talk about and will relate to it. You know, it's funny. I was scrolling through Facebook and somebody had posted rule number seven from the uh, uh, the Green Book, you know. George mm-hmm. Hamilton Green Book, and it was it, it's it, it's very flourished language, but it basically said, "Play things slow till you can play it right, and then start speeding it up." It's kind of like the oversimplification. Yeah. I was like, "Man, he wrote that back when, and and we still like we are writing about it and talking to our students about, it. and yeah. because it never that's a concept that never gets old. It never outgrows itself, and it's like, how can you say that now? We use timers on our smartphones and now we use digital apps to help students and you know it's like the the ideas and music are pretty much the same at the core of music sometimes and i'm oversimplifying is practice more be methodical about your practice and and it will happen you know and but it's the details and and i think that if we just kind of say well all you got to do is practice more and practice harder or practice more efficient now go do that well, nobody can do that. You know, you have to help people understand how to do that. And that's where that non-general information comes in that we're, we're here for. And so I, I just liked that. I saw that on uh, somebody's Facebook that they posted and they just took, they ripped it verbatim out of the book. And I was, and I read it and I was like, gosh, darn it. We're still talking about that stuff today, but I love how it's changed, but it hasn't at the same time. And, and that just kind of goes to show you can always write an article on something, even if it's been discussed over and over again. But, you know, put your put your twist on it. How can you make it your own? And so and anyways, sorry, I'm getting on a platform because I just want people to write more articles. <laughs> As I'm realizing this kind of on, on some of my own stuff is that, you know, you can find there are ways to, that even if you write it specifically for percussion audience, that those things can be with a little tweaking can be for bandmaster associations, for music ed journals, for, for music ed magazines, for um, like a local presentation to, um, you know, a, like a group of band directors to, to like a, a, an ed course to a theory. Like it's, there's so many different ways that this, that everything you're talking about can be applied. You just need to, it's almost like you need to do the one thing outside and then you realize like, oh, I, now I see how it's applicable. Yeah, man. And I'll tell you, that's one thing. Uh, when I was an undergrad, I had uh, Andy Bliss as my uh, graduate, uh, I guess the GA teacher. Mm-hmm. He taught me lessons along with Jim Campbell at UK. And uh, I remember one of the things that was an aha moment, but it wasn't right then. It was like throughout my life, I've realized it more. And I remember we were talking in a lesson and I think I brought up that I had some history assignment or theory assignment. He's like, do it on something percussion related and then just tweak that assignment into an article that you can submit to PAS. And I, and I kind of blew it off because first of all, that seemed way over my head. I was like, only important people write for PAS, which I don't disagree that that's still true today, but I think everyone's important at this point. And so I, that idea of mileage... 
Yeah. Do what? Good save there, by the way. There you go. Uh, <laughs> no, but it, it's like the idea of mileage. You know, we yeah. uh, we do all this work. You know, and I I use the recital one as my biggest example. You know, you got an undergrad and they work all semester or even two semesters on the senior recital. Lots of work, lots of effort. They play it, and sometimes it goes great. Sometimes it doesn't. But then they're done with it, and instead, it's like. Hey, why don't you record that stuff before you play it? Because first of all, make your own YouTube channel. Secondly, you might be able to use those as, if you're a music educator, use those as videos that you can send to your with your resume and showing that you worked hard and that you've you know gained skill in your area and that you'd be a quality teacher that has a strong work ethic. Uh, but you know, or play it at a coffee shop, play it at a local church. You know, just do something other than that one thing because a lot of times, you know. That helps, first of all, take the pressure off that one thing. It's not the senior recital. It's my senior recital, but I'm playing it like five other times. Yeah. Uh, I, I streamed it live even, you know, like separately from the live performance. And, uh, you know, I think that a lot about when I write articles, how can I make this applicable to uh, non-percussion uh, journals or things like that? Or if I'm going to work up a clinic, how can I submit this for PAS, but also for TMEA and Midwest? Right. I really thank uh, Andy for kind of getting me to think about the idea of putting effort into something and getting more out of it. Because gosh darn it, we work so hard as musicians on things and then we aim at this one spot and then it's done. It's like, man, that was a lot of effort and time and energy to, you know, a lot of times it goes successfully, but hey, sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes that senior recital, one of the pieces, you just, you know, doesn't go great. Well, you, you know, if that's the marimba solo, especially I think of in my mind and the students spent, golly, how many hundreds of hours on it and it doesn't go well. Well, you know, that's a that's not a great result for that student and they don't have anything to show for it because they're not going to have a audio or video recording from it. It's like, man, if, if you can just take a little bit more effort and do some more with what you've already put the effort into, then you're maximizing that time and energy you've spent. And I, I that's something that I really encourage my students and, and I try to promote with just what I do myself. And, uh, you know, when I work up a, a recital, I'll try to take it to universities and high schools around the area and, and throughout the country or, and then I'll record it. And then I'll try to use those recordings to get into festivals and to get into other conferences. So you can just kind of build off of it. And, and I was really proud of my, my last master's student who just graduated, Mariah Toller. Uh, she's going to be a doctoral student at Texas Tech. And she presented it at the National Conference on Percussion Pedagogy because in her first master's recital, she played Safa. Well, she took that and she did a little analysis of it, or not a little, I'm not trying to belittle it, but she did an analysis of it and took a little part of that analysis and said, I really like to focus on this concept and presented it at NCPP. She also recorded it and this year NCPP was virtual. So she also got a recital uh performance participation credit on the student recital. So just by doing the her master's recital, she also turned it into a research paper. She also turned it into a conference performance. And it's like she really had to do very little more than the, the initial learning that piece, which is already a monster of the piece. So right. I just love seeing students do that and they get so much out of it. But it does take that little bit of extra effort and that's where a lot of us falter. We don't we, we just want to be done with stuff sometimes and right. you can't fault people for that. But if you can go that extra mile, it can really open up a lot of doors. Yeah. Yeah. No. Well said. The first time that you were on, you, this segment hadn't existed yet. 
So uh, dun, dun, dun. we're going to go with the random ask questions. All right. So first question is not random. Um, even though we've talked a little bit about, you know, teaching and performance issues, maybe something else that you've thought about, but what's an issue in percussion performance or in percussion education that most gets under your skin or drives you the most nuts? Do I have to have a good answer? Can it just be an, <laughs> an answer? <laughs> sure. I mean, it'll reflect badly on you, but that's exactly. That. <laughs> no, uh, that's, that's hard to say. I think it's, it's drum set. You know, I find that drum set has, um, I think for most of the history of percussion, drum set was kind of that entry, I hate to say drug, but kind of entry drug into percussion. It, people would play along with records or CDs and they'd play along and they'd kind of just learn the beats of the band that they liked and that would get them into music and they really enjoyed it and they'd have a bass, uh, a drum set in their, you know, uh, bedroom that would have a thousand cymbals that they had gotten at pawn shops and a million toms, you know, because that makes you a better player. Uh, and that was kind of a gateway drug. And so I found that initial students in, in my age and kind of earlier ages would and my, myself included would come through drum set. And so that would be something that there was a big affinity for. And, and sadly, I feel like that's gone away. I, I feel like most students get into, or a lot of students get into percussion because of the marching arts now. And I think that the marching arts are fantastic, but the thing that that's caused is a kind of aversion to drum set. Now I find students are basically, they, they think of themselves as I either play drum set great, or I don't play drum set at all. And the ones that don't play drum set at all, usually come from schools or from a church, especially where there's that one kid that's been playing drum set since he was like two years old in this church. And they just got better because they kept playing drum set. And they're like, well, I'm 15 years old and I can barely do a, a spang spangalang beat. And that kid's over there doing linear fills, you know, sound like uh, the <laughs> Roy Rooster Jr. Or, or sorry, but, uh, but Jr. Yeah, yeah. Tony Rooster Jr. And, uh, you know, it's just not the case. Like I tell, I try to really help all my students get better on drum set by first just saying, treat it like every other instrument you've learned. You didn't, you weren't born with four mallets in your hand. So why would you expect yourself to play four mallets great right off the bat? You know, same thing with timpani. And, and that's one of the hardest things is usually the first couple of weeks of drum set for me in teaching it is literally trying to lower their expectation to a manageable level rather than just saying, because they know they don't sound good. Like, you know, when you first are learning drum set, you're like, man, I just, I've heard drum set. I know what it's supposed to sound like. And that really kind of gets under their skin, gets them depressed. And then they give up on it or they don't practice it as much because they don't hear that great sound in their head that they wish they heard. But man, it's like, if we all just expect to be great drum set players without playing drum set at all, nobody would play drum set. So I just wish more students would start either start drum set earlier or when they do start drum set, just take it one step at a time and don't beat yourself up. Yeah, I completely agree. The, go the cool thing with drum set is that so much of the learning, and this is really even really particular if they're when they're studying jazz, is they just got to like, if you love music, this should be the easiest thing. Like, it's like, <laughs> just listen to like awesome jazz players. Just listen to great music like you're going to get better because yeah. you're listening to great music well and but i will say that a lot of times students have they struggle finding that music you know and they're like where do i start and that's when you just got to be like t literally put jazz into pandora you know or, or spotify it's like just start somewhere or, or give them a couple of the drummers 
But yeah. I remember because I came from that too. I felt overwhelmed by the world of jazz. And so I didn't listen to any because I was like, well, where do I even start instead of somebody being like, and literally in my master's, I was in a combo and like the bass player gave me a CD. He's like, you need to listen to these. It was a mixed CD. He's like, listen to these. And that was so freeing for me. I felt like it gave me direction. So it, it, I think that that's something that I try to help some students do is just give them that entry point because if not, it's really overwhelming. Yeah. That, 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 that's definitely true. And I, I think even if they're doing like rock styles, you know, you could just, you could just sit there and give them like ACDC, yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, okay. Okay. Uh, lyrical contact withstanding. Um, but, but, it, but you're just like, that's just straight ahead. Like it's like no frills and it's really effective. Yeah. Absolutely. It's like, it's like, here's a starting point. Like if you could do this, we can start. We can we can then start working on some other stuff. Um, so it's like it's it's just knowing that the ways that the, that there are ways in that hopefully a student will have will feel a little less worried about as they're yeah. you know developing the dexterity. Yeah, like yeah, I think that's the exact that's the biggest thing that I've seen in students in, in my time that I I still struggle with that I try to help with is most students don't have trouble with an instrument or a, or a solo or a thing because they're not working hard on it. They just, they're like overwhelmed with some aspect of it or, or the idea of it. And if you can figure out what that is for that student, it, it, it makes things so much better for them and, and the lessons in general. But sometimes they, they don't let you know that until it's way later. It's like, what's been giving you such a hard time? And then they say this one thing. And it's like, if you'd have told me that the first day, we could have just done this thing and you could have moved past it. And, you know, it, but that's part of being a teacher. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. And it's also not at all surprising if, if students are overwhelmed, particularly nowadays when it's everything's available all the time. Yeah. Like if they don't know where to start, it's that's completely understandable. Exactly. So. Yeah, sometimes a lot of ours is just managing expectations and being like, just do this one thing. Right. Don't, don't try to not worry about all the things that you know are coming up. Just do this one thing. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Great. All right, let's move on to non-percussion questions. First one, what is one skill that you have? It's not at all marketable, but you're an all-time great at. <laughs> oh, man, I don't even know. The push-ups might be push-ups for you. I can't. No, man. I, 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 I'm not great at push-ups. Do not, do not hold me to that. I'm not doing a push-up competition at PASIC with anyone. They'll blow me out of the water. I guarantee it. Uh, you know, that's. I, I, I honestly don't have any skills outside of playing music. So uh, I think one of my, my best skills is just problem-solving random stuff, you know, whether it's trying to figure out how to change the oil on a car, which, you know, I did a long time ago, but I just like problem solving stuff and, uh, strategy. I guess that's one of my, my things that I would say I'm, I'm really good at that, uh, is not marketable. <laughs> I don't know. Okay. <laughs> cool. All right. Has anyone ever nailed an impression of you? And if so, how'd they do it? All you got to do is like pull your forehead back and that's, that's me, you know, just, Make your forehead real. <laughs> no, uh, I, the, the, I mean, it's not an impersonation, but uh, the, my favorite thing is that meme of me when I was in cadets and I did the, uh, the drum scatting. 
and it was like uh oh that was you yeah yeah oh and there, there was a meme that was created that said like i'm in your per- i'm in your fridge speaking yours percussions you know it's kind of written in that like law cats yeah, yeah. I, I and and i think it's funny because that'll come up every three or four years and some student will be like hey have you seen this and and Sometimes I think that they they think that it's going to get under my skin a little, and I just think it's hilarious. Like yeah. it's just the funniest meme uh, that I've seen, you know. <laughs> so that that's the best impression that I've seen of me is the the meme of me. <laughs> yes, that's awesome. That's, that's great. All right, uh, what is the most impractical item of clothing you own? Ooh, that's hard. I don't own many impractical items. Uh, my wife would attest to this. My closet is like a quarter of the stuff that she has. Um, I own, Oh, I know what it is. It's a hat. I, I, when I was in cadets, there was, uh, some person, it was a, it was a, a young lady in the stands and she was wearing an I heart Brad hat. That's pink. And, uh, it's a, it's a I heart Brad pit hat. Huh. And so sure. I, I Whatever. <laughs> I know, right? But but here's the thing. She told me that. She's like, oh, she's like, I love Brad Pitt. And I was like, well, that's me because I'm Brad and I march in the pit. And like I had to like coerce her into like giving me this hat. And, and you know, I'm not a smooth talker, but I did get the hat. And so that, I can't wear that hat anywhere. It's never seen the light of day in like over a decade. But I still have it because it just makes me laugh. And, yeah. and it's a stupid hat. So, yeah, that's my no. – that's. That's it. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Uh, that was a, but see, that's the kind of thing that that's a completely worth it thing to still have. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. That will never, that's a valued item for no reason. Yes. <laughs> There's no value to that valued item. <laughs> that's awesome. All right. Next up. What's a great movie and what's a terrible movie? I'm not a big movie guy. I'd be listing off like some generic classics. I do. Uh, my favorite movie for a long time was American Beauty, but I haven't gone back and watched that in a while, so I don't know if it stands up. Um, golly, ho- uh, kind of. Kind it goes in some weird places. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's kind of why I liked it. Um, yeah. I'd have to say something like something generic like Shawshank Redemption, which are obviously great movies. Yeah. Uh, a movie that I think is awful is the the batman with arnold schwarzenegger and uh which yeah. one was that batman forever no no it was batman and robin you, was was that the title of it uh, yeah there, uh, the batman okay. forever was, was jim carrey that one was actually pretty good. gotcha yeah, yeah yeah but it was like you know arnold schwarzenegger is the ice man and yes. and who is poison ivy um uh, uma thurman maybe? uma thurman yeah, yeah. And just just awful acting and yeah. awful characters, but it was supposed to be. They made it sticky, but it was so sticky it was not good. But at the time it was okay. But if you go back and watch it, it's it's virtually un- unwatchable anymore. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the one that because uh, that was the one that George Clooney was Batman. Yes, he's frequently he always refers to it as in like this kind of you know like very mock self mocking fashion. He's like, yes, my my. My bat costume had nipples or something like that. Yeah, yeah, that that wasn't helping anything. No, <laughs> whoever the the costume designer was, you know that their whole life they've either had to embrace that they were that person or completely just avoid it on their resume. And be like, no, I didn't, I didn't work on Batman and Robin the movie. What are you talking about? Right. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. All right. Uh, relatedly, what's a favorite book? 
I've read quite a few recently um, with my graduate student. Um, man, I really did like Peak. I know that one's kind of one that everyone talks about. That was a really good one. Um, I'm actually really liking this book, Start With Why. Uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's really allowing me to think about the percussion studio that I'm trying to create, why I do the things that I do with it, some things that the students could be doing or or couldn't or shouldn't be doing. You know, I just like reads that make you think. I I don't my wife calls them self-help stuff, but I don't I think they're more like entrepreneurial books, but they do kind of help you uh just kind of get out of your own head because we all just get so locked into what we're doing and we just try to do that thing better. But if you can take that step back and be like, you know, I'm trying to like and one of my favorite phrases I heard from uh, Mark Hunter, uh, who's uh, a really awesome drum corps instructor, and, and he teaches out in at Austin with, um, oh God, I can't remember the Cavies uh, drumline guy. Uh, I can't remember now, of course. Uh, but Mark, he used that phrase, uh, polishing a turd. You know, like sometimes you're just polishing a turd. You're, you're trying to force this idea with your students or yourself and it's not working, but it gets a little better. But, you know, you could just be doing something totally different. I think that books like that uh, are books that really help you kind of say, you know, this this turd can only be polished so much. Let me just try a different route and, and hopefully it'll be better. And, and a lot of times it is. So I'm really liking this book and it helps to chat. We've got a little group of uh, seven or eight other university professors and other people in the music world that are reading this and it's nice to chat with them because they kind of bring up things and they'll make you think and so yeah sorry i'm i'm just listing the book that i'm reading right now is my favorite book but that's usually how it goes <laughs> no, that, that works <laughs> all right your go-to karaoke song uh oh um god what is that song i i've only done karaoke once Oh. And uh, it's not zombies. It's uh, when I wake in the morning and I get real high. Oh, I uh, take a deep breath and yes. I get, or I get or non blondes. It's yes. a, What's going on? Yeah, yeah. What's going? That's my jam. I love it. And uh, you know, I don't know why I like singing uh, female songs so much more than guy songs. If I could sing guy songs, it would probably have to be Creed. Cause I always saw myself as doing the like double fist pump in the air kind of, mm-hmm. kind of motion. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah Four non blondes uh, all day long. <laughs> nice. <laughs> awesome. All right. What was your worst job growing up? Well, my dad managed gas stations. And so I didn't really have a job job that uh, like I had to apply for, but I would always be doing odd jobs for him at his stores and so uh, the the worst job was always going to be the trash, taking uh, getting the trash collected from the trash cans in the uh, gas station parking lots yeah. because people throw anything and everything in those, and then the bags would always rip. So I'd have like this just disgusting, like nasty water soda don't want to know what else fluid that would get all over my like legs and shoes when I pull the trash cans and they would always rip. And then I'd have to be picking up that garbage. But, uh, you know, I always credit those, that job or that makeshift job is kind of like why I really pushed myself to, uh, to go through college and and work hard because I saw how hard my dad worked because he was a manager and he did all that stuff too, cleaning the bathroom, stocking shelves, which I did all that stuff as well. And I was like, you know, 
I love my dad. He's, he's a big role model in my life, but I also didn't want to do that. And so uh, I, I think that that kind of I credit to showing me that I wanted to work really hard and go the academic route. So, but there's people that do that and more power to them because, uh, man, you know, we need everybody in this world. Do you remember the, the, like the complete strangest thing that item that you, that you happened to catch in, in a garbage can there? Oh no. I mean, there, there, there was nothing strange. It was just gross I mean, <laughs> diap- diapers and you know, it's, it's gross when you consider like there's soda and drinks that have been poured onto a diaper that then that fluid is the stuff coming out of the bottom. And uh, yeah, it's just not stuff that I like to, I can still remember the smell of pulling trash can trash bags out of trash cans and uh, every now and then when I pull over and I get gas at a, at a place and I smell that and I'm just like, whoa, that's mm. rough. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll, we'll make this the worst segue ever, which is your biggest kitchen mess up. Golly. Uh, I think my worst kitchen mess up was an undergrad. Uh, I would just throw everything into a large pan, large skillet mm-hmm. and just like, that would be my, meals for the next week or so and uh-huh. it would be frozen hash browns hot dogs sliced cheese salsa uh, eggs uh, ground beef noodles <laughs> pasta pasta sauce yeah. uh, and and I they would call it hobo stew just whatever I owned that was in the refrigerator and pantry would be thrown into a giant pot and then I'd freeze it because you know you didn't want it to go bad sure. and then I would just thaw it out and that was my, that I you know, I'm still alive, so it worked. <laughs> I, I, I got calories and I survived. Yeah, <laughs> I hear you. Well, it's, it's, uh, it's, I always think of it as like the, um, you're cleaning out the, the fridge meal. Yeah, just, but I, I, I wasn't cleaning it out. I was just, that was all that I owned. Right. It wasn't like I was cooking good things earlier in the week and then I had that left over. Like, I pre- like I remember cans of pinto beans, cans of back black beans, just tossing them in there because that's what I bought at the store, and yeah. I didn't know what a recipe was apparently. So yeah, yeah, uh, didn't have time to learn, I guess. <laughs> they they nowadays they call that Brad a crock pot. <laughs> no crock pot, you know what you're throwing into it. You're just slow cooking it. That, right. that was just that was just literally hobo stew. It was. It was just whatever I had went into a stew of sort and was then frozen and reheated for about a week. And it was not healthy. None of it was healthy. It was just hot dogs. And right, yeah. I guess beans are healthy, but frozen hash browns. And yeah. I don't know. My <laughs> poor roommates. They had to smell it. <laughs> uh, do you have a sports fandom? Not a big organized sports fan, uh, but I do love to disc golf. And so uh, there was a. Uh, and I still got to watch it, but there was a, I saw highlights. There was a great disc golf championship mm-hmm. that just happened, the world championship and some yeah. amazing plays. And, and I will say Paul Macbeth is a, an amazing disc golfer. And I liked, uh, especially about five years ago, he kind of went through this phase of what I think a lot of musicians who are great musicians go through, which is he realized that he was good, but he could be great. And so he really kind of hunkered down and he just, set up shop and got practice facilities, like a little practice area. He would just go out to a football field and put a, a, a like circle down on the ground and just for hours practice one shot and then, you know, go inside and practice his putting in, in, inside of his house, mm-hmm. uh, got weight machines. And he just got really serious about it. And I really 
respected him after seeing that for someone who took disc golf, which for a lot of time was just associated with smoking pot and drinking beer in a park and, you know, just basically being an activity for people that, you know, for recreational drug use and hippies. And uh, he took it into a really competitive sport. And for a long time, he was making, I don't know, I think it said something about thirty to $40,000 a year, which is a, a good salary for doing a sport. But I think he just signed a contract that was for five years and it's, it was in the millions of dollars. And, yeah. and it, you know, he directly did that by taking it more seriously and so much to the point that he was so much better than everyone else that he won uh, a while ago the world championship and he, he was hurt. He had pulled his side and he had had like a lower back issue, but because he had trained so hard, even with those defects or those things in his you know physicality, he still won. And, and I think that that, if you think about musicians, we, we aim for that. We try to be so overly prepared that even in the time, if something wrong happens, we still come out with the high level product. And I really respected him and what he did for the sport through that process. Yeah. Yeah. Did, did you see the, um, the article on him in the ringer? Maybe. Fine. Cause it, it not only focused on, he was the primary person they were talking about, but it also focused on other people who have been like this person, like the, um, you know, they've taken something that's a real niche sport and be, become the greatest at it. What and, yeah. and they mentioned like four or five different, like really specific things. And he was kind of the the main model because of the fact, like you said, because of the fact that he's now become this uh, someone who's done a lot with um, endorsements and backing, yeah, and, and training. You know, for it. Hmm. I haven't seen that article. I have to check that out. I'll, I'll, I'll send it to you. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that shot, the, there's the, cause the, it's the, the, um, I, I'd have to look it up on, I'm, I'm going to look it up on my phone. Cause, cause like we have like a, a disc golf group that, um, <laughs> that sends it, that like sends each other stuff. Oh, yeah. I need to find, oh, it's uh, James Conrad. Yeah. That shot. called the Holy <laughs> Shot. Yeah, uh, the Holy Shot. There was like yeah. a 280, uh, foot long throw in putt that with a Anheuser, you know, right hand, backhand, Anheuser shot that was just insane. Yeah, forced it, it into to the uh, the playoffs, and then he won it. So yeah, yeah, against it, Paul Macbeth. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's yeah. It, the best thing. My favorite thing from watching because uh, there was a, a I think during earlier in the week he threw in like a three hundred and fifty foot ace and yeah. something like that, and he has this like gazelle run where yeah. he like, runs and leaps at the same. <laughs> it's really hilarious. Yeah. Um, so well, it, it's so awesome about disc golf because you watch that video when he throws in that long putt and like everyone just freaks out and they like come on the, the course and like yeah. it's still like a it you know whereas normal ball golf is it's disc golfers call it but normal golf you can't really do that you can't like run on to the putting green of the masters but right. you know disc golf you can like be high-fiving the world champion as yeah. he runs yeah. up to his you know final putt and it's just a really of the people kind of sports still and that's why i like it a lot yeah um he uh it's like i think the best comparison is is that it's like uh when someone in college basketball hits a game-winning shot and then the the, they rush the court yeah it's like that's what that moment is like yeah Uh, it's because the students are still a part of it you know like whereas in the in the professional leagues you you can't do that anymore it's very much the professionals in the audience whereas yeah, that's a yeah, exactly. The uh 
cool thing was this summer, um, maybe in May, they one of the one of the pro tours came through Columbia, and they they so I got I watched like one of the an afternoon, um, and it was the 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 craziest thing was, you know, all they're playing on on a course that I play all the time, yeah. and and they're just and it, like every hole is reachable in one throw. Yeah. And I'm like, that's no, like, I'm, I was like, Oh, I didn't, you could do that. Like, <laughs> I didn't know that was a, that was a thing that you could do. And they're all just yeah. like, no problem. Yes. I can throw it 500 feet straight. <laughs> yeah. Like, all right. They're like using their putter. Well, yeah, I, exactly. I, right. I went out and played uh, in Waco. There's the E beast, which is that big championship uh, course that get, gets played a lot. And mm-hmm. I played that with a couple of my friends and you just watch the, uh, it's the same thing. You watch the videos and then you go out and play it and you're like, oh, that's way further. You know, the, I remember there was a hole where you have to throw like two, no, it was like 300 feet. And then there's a pond that's another 150 feet. And then the goal's 10 feet after. And I could barely make it to the edge of the pond. And I saw Ricky Wysocki throw a putter and park it next to the goal. I was like, are you kidding me? Right, yeah. like, that is incredible. Like, <laughs> I wasn't there in person, but I can imagine just seeing that and be like, are you, that's ridiculous. Yeah, <laughs> I can, <laughs> exactly. I can't remember which golfer it was, but the last hole on the course that I, I was watching him play on, uh, was like a, is a course that where the whole position was for me, it's like maybe with two really good drives, I can get to it. Yeah. And the guy literally threw it under the basket on the drive. And I was just like, he was probably throwing a mid range too. (laughs) Yeah, he probably did. Like it probably was no big deal. And I was just, yes, that was the thing. Didn't even look like he, it didn't look like a a hard throw for him either. Yeah. It's like, Oh, okay. Now I know what the difference is. It's amazing. (laughs) It is amazing. And I like that, you know, the entry to that sport is one disc. You can literally spend $8 and walk down to a park and play. Yeah, you know, and and that's that's my favorite thing. I'll, I'll usually take my studio out uh, at least one time a year and uh, take them out to our local course and play nine of the eighteen holes. And mm-hmm. you know, it's probably going to be like fifteen to twenty kids, and they're all just throwing discs. And and I literally, I find so many discs. I just give them discs and say, keep it. You know, like yeah. you're you're in college. You're the course is literally a ten minute walk from your dorm. If this can get you a little bit of peace and happiness and play with your friends and get you outside for a couple moments, then Man, it's it's worth the you know. I'm just finding the discs. I'm not even using them, but I would totally buy them discs if I needed to because it's such a just a very communal sport. Where is somewhere that you have not traveled to that you still want to get to? Oh, I haven't traveled a lot of places. I want to go everywhere. That's actually me and my wife's goal in life is to travel a lot more. Uh, we're going to D.C. that next week. I, I apparently was there when I was like five, mm-hmm. but uh, you know we're going there to travel. And I'm going to Key Largo for a, a scuba diving trip at the end of July that I'm really excited about. Never been there. I love scuba diving, so I, I definitely want to get to Bonaire. I uh, want to get out to Belize, get out to the Virgin Islands. Uh, but I'd also like to travel and see things like uh, you know Ireland and Norway. And uh, I've been to South Africa, but it'd be neat to see some other parts of Africa as well. Uh, haven't done really any South America, uh, sadly. And, and you know, there's a couple reasons. I, I, I'd like to go to Brazil, but there, there's been some hard things about that uh, in the past decade or so. Uh, but really, I just like to visit anywhere. You know, I, I'm a I'm a traveler at heart, and I've been to France and 
Taiwan and South Africa, uh, Austria, some other places. And, and I just, it's so refreshing to the soul to, first of all, see other things, but to also experience other cultures. Me and my wife took a trip to Japan for a honeymoon two years ago. And I really resonated with that culture, just the the orderliness of it, the cleanliness of it, the the respect, you know, when you're on a train. First of all, you're on a train or a metro, so that's much different than America. Uh, but, you know, people don't talk on the train or if they do, it's really quiet and people don't listen to their headphones super loud. And it's just such a respectful culture. And, and I really try not to be the ugly American wherever I go. I try to fit in the culture where I am. Um, but I, I, I would think that if I could choose to live anywhere that I've so far been, it would definitely be Japan. It's just an amazing place, both uh, sites as well as the culture. Yeah, very cool. All right. Either the strangest, funniest, or most bizarre performance moment that involves you. Either. <laughs> Sure. I know. Yeah. It's not, it's, not the best. it's not the, it's not the greatest, you know, I, sometimes I need editors too. <laughs> we'll just edit that down into the right question. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. Um, you know, my favorite moment is I was playing a oh, goodness. It was the, no, it was a concerto. I can't even remember which concerto. It was a marimba concerto. And I was playing uh, with one of my uh, piano friends who was doing the piano reduction of it. And Uh, I was right up front on stage and she was right behind me on piano and it was in our kind of medium-sized concert hall and we were playing for our Pi Kappa Lambda Lambda concert, which is our honors fraternity for all the students that make great grades and it's kind of a fundraiser for that. And so I'm playing this concerto. I I was playing one movement of it and I had this lick and I played it and my mallet caught underneath the accidentals and flew out of my hand into the front row. Well, I knew that the piano part had a big roll right at that moment. So I just yelled at my friend Geneva and I said, keep rolling. And I jumped down off the stage, grabbed the mallet. She was just kept rolling that same note. I got back on and just kind of conducted my way back in. And I felt like a, 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 I felt like a goo, first of all, but I felt like half of a rock star. Like I just jumped into the audience. Yeah. Nobody was there to catch me. They just kind of were like, I don't know. I hope they got a laugh out of it because I, I, I was laughing. And, and I use that story with my students every now and then to say, you know, everyone messes up. We all screw up. You know, I tell them you can look at every video that I have online and there's going to be a wrong note or a wrong rhythm or something. And the best thing you can do is just keep going. And not that you can't worry about it, but just try to try to just keep moving forward and, and focus on the next thing at hand because that's already passed. And that was one of those moments where I think really encapsulated that uh, that little lesson that I try to teach. <laughs> no, that's awesome. I, I mean, it, rolling. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a good indication of kind of, of being in the moment where yeah. you're not, where, where you, you allowed yourself to just roll, like rolled with it in a way. Yeah. Uh, and made it like a, a thing that that's probably really memorable. <laughs> yeah, I, my hope is that maybe a couple of people thought it was actually supposed to happen like that. Like maybe it was a, a musical joke, you know? Oh yeah. Yeah. But, but I've seen, you know, and the thing that I like about the stories, I've seen people mess up and I've seen professionals mess up 
And literally the same thing. Their mallet will get caught underneath the accidentals or fly out of their hand. And yep. it's one of our, our fears as players. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I've seen people and they'll like cuss or they'll like shake their head or they'll they'll really exaggerate the fact that something happened that they didn't want to. Right. And that's actually what I remember from those performances. I don't remember their great playing. Yeah. And so if you can make that moment, first of all, light and just keep moving forward, hopefully people will either remember the performance itself or they'll think of that moment as something fun, you know, because music, what is that, uh, Todd Meehan, or or is it Todd Meehan, or is it um, Ivan Trevino that has the shirt that says uh, serious music, or fun music is serious music, or it's like this kind of logo on top of a logo, and, you know, like serious music can be fun music, and uh, you don't have to, you, you know, I'm not, making all my money or any money really playing as a solo artist. So, uh, you know, it's just have fun with it and try to enjoy the moment and you work really hard on something. And if it happens, great, great. If not, then just move on. And, you know, people generally will give you praise at the end of your performance, even if something bad does happen and you just accept it and move on and either learn a lesson or just say, well, that's what happens. And, that was just one of those moments where I can think back and go, I'm not at all ashamed of that moment. And in fact, I think it was a great moment and, and something I was really happy and proud of. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's awesome. Very cool. All right. And last question, Brad. What one piece of art, whether it is music or movies, books or podcasts, YouTube clips, theater, visual art, poetry, etc., has impacted you the most recently? Oh. Good question, man. That's a well-rounded nice. question, and I'm not delaying. I'm, I'm patting myself on the back for, for yeah, you. Yeah, there you go. Because <laughs> since you're not, since we're over Zoom. That's right. Um, you know, I did just get back from the uh, St. Louis uh, Museum of Art, and they had the water lilies painting, and that really affected me. I, first of all, did not know how big that painting was. Yeah. It's gigantic. Yeah. And... Uh, you know, it was really neat because that same museum had Van Gogh's, it had Rodin's, it had uh, a Poulenc, which I didn't find out until after I left. So I was kind of bummed that I didn't get to see that. Uh, some other great uh, painters, as well as some people that were less known that had some great paintings. But that Water Lilies, you know, I, I, did, I just tried to get in front of it really close. I tried to get far away. And it, it just kind of constantly changed the more you looked at it. Yeah. And, and so to me, I guess I'd have to go to that because like right now that one's still affecting me and and uh yeah i just i was kind of overwhelmed by that painting and the size and grandeur and you know you get up close and the the cool, cool thing about you know visual art especially paintings is that you can like go in and see the brush stroke and when you connect that and say that famous painter or maybe not famous whoever but they made that stroke and you can like envision the bristles that were connected to the paintbrush that are connected to their hand. It's like, it really gets you into that experience of like, man, it's not just a picture. It's not just a photo. Like that is paint that was put there on purpose by that person. And I don't know. It just really was a a great moment. And and I was surprised too. We had gone for one of their new installations uh, that we got to see some neat things about, but didn't expect to see that stuff. They didn't have that on the website. So I was, it was a, it was a surprising too. Cause I was just like, there it is. <laughs> I was like, Holy cow. So anyways, I would have to say water lilies right now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you, I've made, I've said this to other people before, but the, 
it's kind of it shows you why art museums in particular are so important and and why you need to go see these artworks in person it's not it's not the same like exactly. like it, you know particularly you making the point about the scale of of like water lilies i always think of it in terms of when i've seen jackson pollocks in person yeah and they're just like they're so big i can't even explain to you how big they are yeah you know versus the mona lisa which is quite underwhelming <laughs> i've never even seen it so i couldn't i couldn't tell you yeah well it's it's just you know man it's starry it's so, starry night is is very small too it, oh really and go yeah 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 I, I was you know i think once you hear about the monet everyone's like yeah it's real small and it's behind a really big protective thing of glass and and it, and they were right like it, it wasn't even enjoyable because there's so many people crowded around this tiny painting. You couldn't just stand there and like reflect on it. And that was the, that was probably the biggest disappointing. It's not that it's not a great painting and not because it's small, but because it's so famous, you can't get that personal time. Whereas with the, the water lilies, I was just like up there and I was like literally, you know, foot away from it and just able to stare at every brush stroke and, you know, go back and go forward and, yeah, I I really liked that experience. Whereas you know, when you're in the Louvre, there's a million paintings, so you're just walking by. That's amazing. That's amazing, and you kind of get numb to how much stuff you're seeing. And then you come across the Mona Lisa. You're like, oh yeah, that's famous, and everybody's standing in front of it, so I can't really see it, and it's real small. And you know, it still, I still am happy I saw it, but it was just, you know, yeah. What I was thinking about was the um, Michelangelo's David in. Mm-hmm in Florence, Italy, which is the kind of thing, again, it's like you've seen pictures of it and you, what you can't, and it's similar to water lilies. You can't, you can't, uh, make up the, or explain the massive size of of this thing. Um, which just makes it even more impressive that it just looks like a normal person, but it's like 30, 25 feet. I mean, it's just so big. Yeah. You know, and so it's like that. Those kinds of things are just like make the what you're seeing even more impressive. Yeah, yeah. So got to see it in person. That's another check on the uh, travel list. You know, I something that I've found. I've I've lived in South Carolina and Kentucky and Texas, and uh, every now and then I'll meet a person that's lived there their whole life, whether that's short or long, and they'll I'll say, "Oh, where have you been?" And and they're like, "Well, you know, I've I've never left this state because it's got everything." You know, it's got this, it's got that. And I'm like, no place has everything. No, you know, and that's not, I know that travel costs a lot and, and I'm very fortunate to be able to do that. But I also prioritize that, you know, I don't do other things so that I can do that. And I would really encourage anyone listening that if you don't travel, make a point of it to do it and not just in your local area or not even in, in your country, you know, like the U.S. is fantastic, but there's so many other places. And, uh, you know, if you're not from the U.S., come to the U.S. So it's you know, travel just really rounds you and it, and, and it makes you appreciate things you have. And it also makes you appreciate things you don't have. I will say uh, on a funny note about that, we got a bidet, you know, because we went to Japan and I was like, my life has changed. And so, uh, you know, I think I'll, I'll be, uh, if I could get a bidet sponsor out of this, you know, then, then I'll, I'll take it because I think that everyone in, in the U S should definitely have a bidet. It's, uh, it's life altering. So there's that. <laughs> that is definitely the note we are ending this on. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs>
a pleasure to chat with Brad again on the show. I look forward to catching up with him, hopefully at future percussion conferences, and maybe we'll get in a round of disc golf while that happens. Stay tuned. This week's rave will be short and sweet, and it is travel and getting to see loved ones. Over the past couple of weeks, my wife and I got to do something that, likely, many of you have gotten to do over the summer, which is see your folks, whoever they may be. We ended up taking a car trip to both North Carolina and New York to see both of our families. It was a lot of time in the car, which was great, and it was a really good and much-needed trip. We'd had the time and seen our folks over Zoom over the past 18 months, but getting the chance to just enjoy each other's company, have some fun, and enjoy some great food, including a bunch that we brought back with us, well, that was completely needed. Additionally, both of us took somewhat of an actual break from work, which was also incredibly important and needed. So, if you've been vaccinated and have had the chance, please try and see those that you're close to again in person. It will make you feel good and connected in so many important ways that you may not even realize. So get to it. And that's our show. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave a comment and a rating. You can always find every episode and the show notes at the homepage at PeteZambito.com slash Pete's Percussion Podcast, the episodes. The show is on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, and many other podcast locations. If you're on Facebook, like the page Pete's Percussion Podcast. You can find me there on Instagram and Twitter at Pete Zambito or by email at Pete's Perk Pod at gmail.com. And I'll catch you next time. Until then.